Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer some patron emails. Patron Nicole wrote in and says, Dr. Kirk, I know you are happy with the current size of the podcast and the size of the community, but as someone who is so on it in terms of efficiency and productivity, I wonder if you had a staff team of six Dr. Kirk clones, is there an area you would expand into and like to grow? End of email. Yeah, if I had six clones, boy, that's a great thought exercise. Um, Number one is my first clone. So there would be seven of me, I guess is the thing, right? So there'd be me and then there'd be six clones. Uh, The first clone would answer every email because I think there are a lot of really great questions. People want to know what I think of certain things. They might be looking for advice. Of course, this podcast is not a replacement for professional services, therapy services, legal services, that kind of thing. But, you know, getting a perspective from someone else is can, can be helpful, of course. Um, you wouldn't want to dictate your life based on a podcaster's opinion. But but answering every email, it makes me feel connected. I also feel beholden. Uh, it's a holdover from the earlier years of the podcast when there were different phases. The, the first phase of the podcast, I would get no emails. <laughs> And so it was like, or comments or any, no, no feedback at all. Just no indication that anyone was listening. And then the second phase was maybe once every three months, I would get an email or something. And oh boy, when I got those emails, it was really euphoric. And I was like, oh, I finally made it. Like there's this random person in the world who discovered the podcast and emailed in, you know, and we're talking in the order of six years at this point into the podcast. Then uh, the next phase was when I was getting a lot of emails, but I was able to answer all of them. I would also personally reply to every email just in written form in some uh, immediate way. And then I would more elaborately answer the question on the podcast. And then this last phase is uh, where I, it's just not humanly possible. I would have to have 15 episodes a week in which each episode is two hours and I'm reading all the emails. Because, you know, another issue is um, someone recently gave some feedback, which I took to heart, which I agree with and appreciated, which is that constructive feedback, which is that part of my deep desire to respond to everyone's email because I, I just feel bad. I feel guilty for not answering people's emails. I was starting to race through them, right? Lightning round. And what one person was saying that that sort of does a disservice to everybody because I'm not really honoring or not really fully answering every email. And so you might as well not do it at all, right? Or just pick a a select few and really get into it with those emails. So, you know, I I really took that to heart and um, am, uh, you know, trying to do that more. And uh, what that means is um, I can't answer most emails. And really, I think it's it's changed even more recently, maybe in the past year or so, six months, where maybe even a couple of years ago, maybe during the pandemic when I wasn't really doing anything outside the house and had the time, I was still getting to most emails, but the email doc- document list is just getting longer and longer. And along those lines, while I'm on this topic, what I'm planning on doing just for my own mental health, my own mental wellness is uh, I'm going to do a bout of sort of spring cleaning, you know, prior to spring, but I'm going to answer all the emails that I think I can, and then I'm going to delete all the old emails. So if your email isn't addressed in one of these episodes, there's a chance that I included it in the document that I have for Rebecca or Umberto or Bob, because I'll I'll still hold on to those emails. But unless they're for them, uh, I'm just going to wipe the slate clean for a number of reasons. One is the document is so big, it actually takes a long time to load. <laughs> It's a Google Doc, and it's really hard to edit. Now, of course, you know you could just split them into two, but you know what I mean. Like we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages of emails, and so there's that. Also, I wonder if the people who emailed in, because some of these emails could have been a, a year or two ago, and so is is this person even listening anymore? Is the question even relevant anymore? Um, also, I, I just I'm compulsive in this way that I I don't want things to pile up, and so I just want to wipe this late clean and um but i'm gonna try to i i'll probably record i don't know this might be the first of 10 episodes that i record in which i try to get to as many emails before i wipe the slate slate clean and of course i i'm favoring you know more of the patrons emails of course because i don't know it just makes sense to do that but anyway so my first clone would be to answer every email 
And uh, either through email or even on the episode, maybe there'd be a second podcast where all it is is answering emails. Um, Another clone of myself that I would do is I would watch 10 times the amount of stuff. I would, that's all that that clone would do, or maybe two of the clones, because there's a lot of stuff. So maybe clone two and three would watch all the reality shows that everyone wants me to watch and that I'm interested in, all the movies and TV shows. I'll be watching a movie or a TV show and a scene will come on that will depict therapy. And I'm always like, Oh, I, I want to do a reaction to that. There's so much to say about that little snippet of therapy. Um, what was I thinking? Oh, <laughs> I was rewatching. I'm rewatching. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I, I every once in a while I just watch all seasons again, and I came upon that upon that one episode or a scene from that episode in which they all go to therapy. And I I, I already did an episode where I was reacting to that, but there was some other show I was watching where they were in therapy, and I thought, oh, that was terrible what the therapist did there. Anyway, also reacting to TikTok. I mean, TikTok is just an endless pit of content to react to because there are just millions of terrible notions that people are propagating on TikTok about psychology. And I've made some reaction videos to that, but I just, you know, I just don't have the time. Um, But I actually really enjoy that kind of stuff. Uh, There's other YouTube channels I'd want to react to. I plan on actually doing a long series of reacting to Teal Swan's videos, but it got put on the back burner and then eventually just shoved off the table because of other priorities. I I think I only got to four episodes of reacting to Teal Swan. There's a lot to say about her and what she says because some of it is, I think, good advice that she gives and some of it is bad of course but uh you know so there's just a lot of stuff like that so i'd say two of the clones would do that the fourth clone would have more interaction i would want that clone to do with y'all um, more live streams more comments reactions more live events actually stacy and i just last night were kind of brainstorming about having a live event where people could come to meet us in person uh which is a wonderful experience. We've had that in the past before the pandemic, and it was a you know a euphoric experience for me. And it's been a long time. Um, one of the major barriers that I actually realized last night while talking to Stacy, um, we were in Wallingford at at a at a restaurant, and um, I don't know why I'm telling you that detail, but and I, I was talking about it. I guess maybe why I'm telling you that when we go out on date night, uh, I would guess that 50% of the time we talk about the podcast. You know, it's it's a chance for us to kind of dream or you know catch up or plan or recap or something. And uh, uh, it just popped in my head having a live event. I don't know why, and I thought. Well, the biggest barrier to me moving ahead with starting a live event is that I would feel so guilty if people flew in from out of town, spent a lot of money to get an airplane flight and hotel and you know vacation time, and the live event wasn't very satisfying to that individual. <laughs> like, if, like if I could have a live event where I could guarantee that only locals within driving distance attended uh, it, it would it would be a much lower barrier of entry, barrier of entry for me <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's stupid of course you know uh, why would I uh, think that um, but um, yeah and it's happened in the past um, not the disappointment I don't know maybe people were disappointed but when we've had live events in the past people flew in from all over the world and you know it just sort of heightens the anxiety for me of the whole thing. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, so that would be the fourth clone is more more interactive types of activities um, that I uh, I miss out on and maybe even responding to every comment on YouTube, that kind of thing. Another, uh, the fifth clone and maybe the fifth and the sixth clone would do more deep dives. This would be the, the most important thing. If I, if I had one clone, if you gave me one clone, they would do more deep dives. That's all that that clone would do. There's just so many things that I want to get into. I think I've talked about before how at a certain point I realized that my list of must do in terms of my deep dives, the, the deep dives that I must do, that I, I, I personally need to do for my own personal satisfaction, the list is so long that I'm not going to get to them by the time I'm dead. <laughs> Like, there's just no way for me, uh, you know, time-wise to be able to get to every single must on that deep dive list. So, uh, you know, if I had another clone, then I'd be able to, so, you know, five and six clone would. Uh, And also, uh, maybe if you gave me a seventh clone, I I would want that uh, clone to write 
books and more publications. Um, I have a lot of book ideas that uh, even have, I have a lot of half written books. I have one very long half written book, very long half manuscript on grief that uh, I shelved, I don't know, eight years ago or something. And, and, um, uh, feel bad that I, I don't really feel bad about not publishing it because it, I don't know, it, it's, there's a lot of excellent books on grief, but that I don't need to add to, but I just feel bad to myself of the past, of the past. Cause I spent so much time. I mean, I would spend a whole weekend, you know, 16 hours a day, Saturday, 16 hours a day, Sunday writing and researching. Cause I, I looked up all the research. It wasn't just me yammering about grief. It was looking at the science and the history of grief in our field. And, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it was a lot of work. Another clone, I would like to do more kind of short videos. If you're on YouTube, uh, looking at other psychology people talk, you know that most people, most clinicians on YouTube make real short videos. You know, think Katie Morton, these kind of people, uh, Dr. Grande, they'll make 10 minute, 15 minute videos, which is, you know, probably the the preferred uh, length of time, right? And uh, I've, for a variety of reasons, th that's not as much of a priority as doing the content that I usually do, which is more long form. But I do wish that I had like a YouTube channel that also did that. You know what I mean? Now that I say it out loud, it's like, well, how could I add to that? Because if you have half a dozen other competent YouTubers that are doing that sort of thing, I guess I would want to do short videos on topics that aren't typically covered or in my vein, in my, you know, my style, I guess would be another thing. Um, but I don't know. I, as, as I talk about more of that, maybe I don't need that clone. <laughs> but that's an interesting question. So this next set of emails I actually planned on reading during the pandemic recap that Umberto, Umberto and I did, but that um, series of episodes got so long that I didn't get to the emails, but I thought I would read some of those. Uh, this first uh, email is from listener Dina from California. She says, I missed my own wedding because I tested positive for COVID two days before. My husband and I ended up driving separately three hours to the outdoor venue and recording a solo ceremony, then driving back. And the wedding coordinators played our ceremony at the reception, which we zoomed into. We couldn't cancel, and people were already on flights, so we didn't want to reschedule. A lot of local people didn't end up coming, though, which was understandable, but a huge waste of money and a bummer. I'm just writing in because even though it ended up being a beautiful experience still, it was pretty traumatic and I'm just processing, processing all sorts of uh, conflicting emotions. End of email. Yeah, that's God, it's just so awful that weddings have problems and, you know, there's always some sort of crisis uh, of some sort, but that really takes the cake is to test positive for COVID two days before the wedding and then you can't go, but then you're like, well, everyone's already flown in and all the money has already been spent, so we have to go through with the wedding anyway, but we can't attend <laughs> the wedding. And then a lot of people just didn't go because they're like, well, if they're not going to be there, then why would we go there? Yeah, it, it just sounds uh, just truly awful. That's, that's pretty... Oh, hopefully you can have like a second wedding of some sort that you don't have to spend any money, you know, just get everyone together and have a fun time. I don't know. It's just pretty tragic. All right. An anonymous listener actually wrote in and asked about the long-term effects of the COVID pandemic and what the research will show. And what my answer to that is, is that there's some early research that is coming out that is identifying some effects that the pandemic, long-term effects that the pandemic has had on us as humans and also the world, the economy, the ecology, the uh, income disparity. You know, there's a lot of different effects, a lot of bad effects from the pandemic. And in terms of psychology, um, we have some early data, and we won't necessarily know everything uh, for another five to ten years because it usually takes that long to gather all the data and to see how long the effects actually last. But, yeah, there are a lot of effects of the lockdowns around the world, increased domestic violence, increased mental illness, depression, anxiety, etc. U.S. happiness has been steadily declining since the 1960s anyway, but it drastically dropped during the pandemic, which of course makes sense. Decreased life satisfaction in addition to happiness, right? Um, a four times increase in severe psychological distress. And that is uh, important to highlight because when you say a phrase like that, like severe psychological distress, it doesn't 
seem to have a lot of weight to it. But if you really think about what is behind uh, that label, the individual that says, yes, I have severe psychological distress, or individuals show signs of severe psychological distress. You know, we're talking about people that are suffering extremely, you know, in extreme ways, uh, all the time, all day, lots of stress, lots of anxiety, lots of depression, lots of anger, lots of uncertainty, lots of hopelessness, lots of isolation. And there's been a four times increase during the pandemic. Women, children, and people of color were particularly impacted in a negative way with more distress, less access to health care, um, that sort of thing, uh, more unemployment. All right, this next email is from patron Selena from New York. She says, for the past few months, my mind has been particularly overwhelmed with the thoughts about large-scale disasters with climate change, COVID, the war in Ukraine, etc. This all leaves me feeling grief and hopelessness about the future. I'm struggling to process these feelings. I'm curious about your thoughts on how people deal with these feelings. End of email. Yeah, so I will give my model for emotions, how to cope, how to deal. And these are my, uh, my this is a list of, of steps. It's sort of a loose list of steps. Number one is self-awareness is uh, you have to really take the time to because you might know that you're feeling stressed out but you might not know exactly what's going on what sort of emotion is happening um, what you're feeling in your body what the intensity is uh, it's not guaranteed that you even know the baseline experience that you're going through because of uh, stress or um, early childhood development that wasn't uh, uh, good enough to allow you time to connect with your emotions that kind of thing so Take the time to really, and maybe y'all can do this in these steps. If you're if you're struggling with something, if there's something that you wish you could cope with better, um, you maybe pause the podcast as we go through these steps to check in. So number one is self awareness. So answer these questions: What emotion am I feeling, or what set of emotions am I feeling? On a scale from one to ten, with ten being very severe, where am I? If, if I'm sad, how sad am I? What am I feeling in my body? Okay, so really focus on that because without that, we don't know what we're dealing with. Number two is, the number two step is, why am I feeling this emotion? What are the factors that are contributing to me feeling this emotion? For example, if you're feeling hopelessness, as you're saying this, Selena, why are you feeling hopeless? Well, you would say climate change, COVID, war in Ukraine, that kind of thing. So you want to list that out because that's important because, uh, you know, if, for example, I feel a pain in my side, a physical pain, which you could argue is an emotion, and uh, if I don't know where that pain is coming from, I won't know what to do with it. So you have to know what's happening. If, if you look down and you notice that you have a branch sticking into your side, then you go, okay, well, the branch is the cause of that pain. The same goes for other emotions like hopelessness and sadness and fear. Why am I feeling this way? Because then I will know what I need to maybe look at. All right. Number three is what are these emotions motivating me to do? This is critical. Emotions motivate. Whenever you think emotion, think motivate. Think motion. Emotion puts us into motion. It motivates us. When I feel that pain in my side, I have a motivation to move away from that branch that's, or to take the branch out of my side. When I feel lonely, I have a motivation to seek connection and relationships with other people. When I am joyful and happy, it motivates me to signal that to other people, to tell them, please continue with what you're doing because this is making me happy. You know, they're saying a joke or we're hanging out for date night, me and my wife, and I'm smiling and we're laughing together. It's a way of, um, it motivates, right? The joy motivates me to smile, to laugh, to have eye contact, to be in a, a chipper mood. And that rewards the whole situation. So it will continue or it'll motivate it to happen more often. So, uh, um, so what is the emotion motivating me to do? What's it telling me to do? If this, one of the questions I ask my clients is, all right, so you feel that hopelessness in the pit of your stomach. If that pit in your stomach could talk, what would it say? Okay, just answer that question. Number four is, 
are these feelings and motivations rational? This is important. Okay? This is kind of our first check-in cognitively on the rationality of it. They might be rational. They might not be rational. They might be kind of rational. They might be mostly rational. So how rational? And this is important to look at. So if you feel hopelessness about the future regarding climate change, is it rational to feel hopeless? You know, I, I would say that there is some rationality to that. Regarding COVID, is that rational? Regarding war in Ukraine, is it rational? Uh, you know, I, I would say all those things are fairly rational, but sometimes we have emotions that aren't rational. Like, uh, you know, someone might feel tremendous shame because at work, um, they downsized at work and uh, as a result, you were, you know, uh, you, another job was foisted on you. So not only do you have to do your job, but you have to do like two other people's jobs and your boss is yelling at you and you feel ashamed of yourself. And you're saying, what's wrong with me? How, oh, I'm, af I'm afraid I'm upset at myself. Is it rational to be angry at yourself? The answer is no. <laughs> you know, it's not rational to be upset at yourself for being a human being and having normal human limitations and um, not being able to do three people's jobs in, in one person's body. So you have to ask, ask that question, is it, is it rational? How much of it is rational? And then if it's not rational, then you want to start to uh, break that down and examine it and pick apart the underpinnings. You know, like for that person at work, you would say that, well, the fact that you're getting anything done is really quite amazing. And it's not your fault that you were given three persons jobs. So the expectation that you're supposed to be able to get everything done is not fair to you. It's not rational. So you need to change your perspective. And the perspective that I would recommend people adopt in a situation like that is, well, I'm going to do the best I can. And then I'm done. I'm going to work 40 hours a week and then I'm done. And if my boss thinks that I'm failing, well, that's on him because uh, it's not my fault that they're not hiring more people. You know, I'm not, I'm not running this business. Uh, I, I, I work for 40 hours and that's that's what I'm on, on contract to do. And that's what I do. If, I, if they want to think I'm a failure and have that distorted point of view, that's that's them. It's not me. I differentiate myself from that. OK, but if it is rational, then let's move on. So number five is make a plan. What do you need to do to reduce that emotion? This is important because remember, there's this motivation that your emotion is motivating you to do. Make a plan to uh, meet that, um, what your emotion wants you to do. You know, if the pit in your stomach because of COVID or Ukraine or, you know, climate change, if the pit in your stomach is saying, we need to change this, this needs to be changed, this needs to change, okay. Well, you're one person on this planet out of 8 billion people. What can you do? There are things you can do. There's only so much you can do, but there are things you can do, right? Maybe you start conserving electricity. Maybe you get some solar panels. Maybe you get a green car. Maybe you stop driving as much. Maybe you get a bicycle. Maybe you start donating to certain charities. Maybe you start um, recycling and composting. Maybe you uh, buy things with less packaging or something, you know, put up, make, put it a plan into place. Now for a lot of people, they're already doing all the, you know, for the climate change warriors, people who worry about that ongoing in all likelihood, they're doing a lot of things. Okay. So you might actually make a plan and say, well, I'm already kind of doing all these things. Maybe there's more you could do, but you know, make a plan. And then Number six is enact the plan, but you need that step of actually making the plan because it takes a lot of time to kind of figure that out. So number six is enact the plan. So is it seeking justice? Is it voting? Is it uh, speaking up? Is it conserving electricity? Is it going to school to become a researcher or an activist? Is it drawing a boundary with someone? Is it going to the doctor finally to look at this thing that you've always worried about? You know, enact the plan. All right. So then the last step, which is maybe the most important step, is number seven, do I have any extra emotion? Do I have any extra emotion? Because you probably will, uh, but, but maybe not, but it depends. Because for a lot of people, 
once they enact their plan and address their emotion voice, right? Their emotion is saying, you got to do this. And then you do it. Then the emotion goes away. You know, the worry or the hopelessness or the anger or whatever goes away because you have now satisfied that emotion. But in some situations, there's extra emotion. And by extra emotion, I mean that you have reasonably determined that you are doing everything in your power reasonably to address that emotion um, within, you know, human limitations, right? For example, with climate change, you could do a lot of things yourself to combat climate change. And there's a pretty good chance that the global warming of, you know, the average temperature of the earth is still going to increase by, you know, one or two centigrade, centigrade, Celsius. And so it's, uh, it's, there's only so much you can do. And, And then the fear and the worry and the despair would be normal in that situation, right? Okay. Now, maybe in addition to doing things, if we're talking about climate change, in terms of on the ground actions that you can take, it's also emotional, right? That you can get support, you can vent, you can create art, you can write a song, you can draw a painting or something. And so, you know, it's another way of addressing that emotion. Okay, but then after you do all that, what's the extra emotion? Do you, do you have extra emotion? If you have extra emotion, label it as extra and unhelpful. You want to look at that emotion, that gut feeling, that pit in your stomach and say, I hear you pit and I've done everything in my power to address you. Now I reject you. (laughs) Now the pit might not go away, but at least you know and you're confident that you have done everything in your power to address it. And that pit is now present, but it's no longer nagging you. It's not a monkey on your back. It's not poking you in the side going, do something, do something, do something. Because you are doing something. You have made a plan. You have enacted that plan. And now any extra emotion you label as extra and thus is just kind of a thorn in your side that is irrelevant. Maybe every once in a while you revisit and say, maybe I can do more. Maybe I need to revise this. Is my emotion trying to motivate me to go in this other direction? But whatever extra is there, you have to combat. Now, there's lots of different ways to deal with it, right? You can reassure yourself that you're doing everything you can. Maybe that'll reduce that emotion. Maybe you just tell yourself, look, I'm just not going to think about it. You know, like, for example, with climate change, I'll just talk about for myself. I've done this process informally with climate change. I've had the emotions. I've looked at what are the emotions motivating me to do? I've made a plan. I've I've enacted a plan for myself on how I can do my part to combat climate change and, you know, ruining the earth in a variety of ways. And then every once in a while, I'll have a, a, an emerging emotion, right, around it. And I have, unless I'm in that revisiting phase, which I probably happens once every couple months, then I I... I just say, just don't think about it. You know, I, I've already thought about it a lot. And the more I think about it, the more it's going to upset me, which is just extra emotion. I, I've, I'm doing everything I can reasonably. And I'll revisit this in a couple months, but I'm just not going to think about it because I've already thought about it. <laughs> and the more I think about it, the more emotion I have. And all that emotion is extra because I'm already doing everything I can. So that's one way, of course, you know, and that doesn't work with everything, right? Now, I'm talking about things that we have a lot of control over in terms of our emotions and awareness and behavior and attention. For some of us, our emotions, we don't have any control over them, right? The the trauma or the triggering is, or it's right in our face. Uh, for example, if you're in an abusive relationship or something, you know, it's case by case basis. There's a lot of, but at least, you know, Hey body, I get, I hear you. I hear you telling me that I need to do something. I'm already doing it or I I'm, I'm going to start tomorrow or something. So, you know, chill out, <laughs> you know, at least your conscious mind knows, well, I'm doing everything I can because to not have that ability to say that you're really lost in the woods, right? Because you have this emotion that's that's nagging you in your side and it just ends there, which is what a lot of people do. They feel the emotion 
and then they either try to avoid it or they shame themselves or they try to quote unquote let go or whatever and they just stew in this limbo phase of the emotion is trying to tell me to do something and I'm not listening or I don't know I'm supposed to listen or I think that I'm weak because I have emotion or whatever, or my life is so discombobulated and chaotic, I don't really have the time to sit down and think about this, which is another thing to think about. You know, you, you need space and time to think about it. It might take some time to set that up in your life. So that's my model, and I've talked about that before, but I think I've gone into more detail this time um, of how to deal with those emotions. All right, let's take a break and we get back more emails. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often, those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems. But there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well. And by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. So, celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we're back from the break. Patron Pema or Pima from Portland, she says, You recently shared how your heart had a talking to me. You recently shared how your heart had a hard time not feeling rejected while your wife was quarantining with COVID, even though your head understood she wasn't rejecting you. This has been a big issue in my house this past summer. No one has gotten COVID, but my husband, who is high risk, insists on us wearing masks for a few days in the common areas in the house whenever there is a possible exposure from outside activities. This is extremely hard on my 10-year-old son, who is an only child. Could you please elaborate on the difference between the heart and the head's experience in situations like this? End of email. Yeah, I get it. So if I'm understanding right, your husband, who is high risk, could possibly die or have huge negative emotional and health impacts from uh, catching COVID. And so it sounds like whenever there's possible exposure from outside activities, which I'm guessing happens a lot with you know your kid who's 10 years old, you know, in school or sports or friends or whatever, and then you, if you're working outside the house. So I'm guessing there's a a lot of moments where you've been exposed to people and might have uh, a variety of different infections. And your husband uh, insists on everyone wearing masks in the house for a few days in the common areas, which results in uh, a a good portion of time where everyone in the household, your son, you and your husband, not having that um, full-on 3D in-person human contact, right? Um, You might have eye contact, you might, because, you know, the masks don't cover the eyes, but the full face is needed for full, often for full, um, you know, a full experience of someone, or at least an experience that we're used to, right? So, 
yeah, I get it. I, I get where he's coming from. I, I ner- totally understand why he would make that choice. And yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer. That there's a there's a pro and a con, right? Because the pro with doing what you're doing uh, and ha- and following his policy is that you're uh, as a family much more likely to live, you know, and to not die and not to have long COVID and not to lose a family member, right? So that's obviously a pro. The con is that you could have a lot of emotional separation and relational trauma to each other and also maybe most concerningly to your son, which is, you know, we talked about this in the pandemic episode recap that it's like, where's that line? There's, there, there are pros and cons to safety. You know, if we really wanted to be ultra safe, we would lock everyone in a room and you would feed everyone food through a slot, you know, and that would be ultra safe because there would be very low chance of being able to transmit anything between people. But of course, the, the there's obvious cons to that. So what what's the best policy given all the different risks, you know? I don't know. Like an, another uh, analogy to this is that we all understand that when we get in our cars and drive somewhere, there's a risk of us dying or killing someone or becoming permanently injured, you know, becoming paralyzed or losing a limb or um, something, having a brain injury. We all understand that, right? Everyone listening understands that, <laughs> that when you get in a car, uh, it's one of the most dangerous things you will ever do in your life in terms of risk of accident and death. Uh, people rarely recognize that, but you know everyone intellectually understands that, and yet people still take that risk. People will even transport their own kids in these vehicles, and they'll even take a risk with their kids. So why do we do this? Well, because the alternative is worse to not be able to go anywhere, to not be able to run errands or you know take your kids to school or to drive to grandma's house or I don't know, go to a movie or something. The alternative is worse. We would rather take the risk of death and serious bodily injury. We'd rather take that risk to gain the benefit. So when we are home and you have a high risk family member, where is that line? Because if you really wanted to be ultra safe, no one would have contact with your husband ever. He would always be behind a locked door. So obviously there's some risk that he and others in your family are willing to take. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know where we all should be. I don't know what, and you know, of course it would vary from person to person based on circumstances, you know, high risk would of course dictate a different policy in all likelihood. So yeah, I don't know. And it's a weird question to ask. And we're not used to really asking those questions. In fact, in my estimation, most people who drive cars have this delusion that it won't happen to them, that they they intellectually understand that people are getting in car accidents all the time and deaths on the road are happening all the time. Drunk drivers are happening all the time. But I think most people just go into denial of the risk. They're just like, well, it's not going to happen to me because I'm a safe driver or I have a safe car or I wear my seatbelt or my head's on a swivel and I, I drive defensively or whatever sort of excuse you say in your head, but you're still at risk. So even with common risks like that, you know, cost-benefit analyses that we go through with driving and other kinds of activities in our life, I don't think we're actually good as humans at seeing the gray zone there, at trying to figure out, well, in another common scenario that people run into, or, you know, not common, but uh, in one individual's life, but common among the humans is making a determination for hospice late in life, right? There's that conversation or with your pets, there's a conversation. It's like, well, we could do these set, this set of procedures and cost this amount of money and this amount of discomfort to your loved one or your pet. And we might get X amount of days extra of life, but what kind of uh, quality of life are we talking about now? And as Unless you have experience with this or have a very robust support system around you, it can be a very bewildering, very difficult calculation to make. You have to weigh all the factors and say like, well, you know, we don't know. There's pro- It's all probable. It's all probability. It's like there's a probability. I'm hearing there's a probability if we go this route, maybe we'll get another five years out of this. That sounds good, but it sounds like pretty low likelihood. So 
you know, and it could, there could be bad things if we decide to do treatment and non-hospice care and non-end-of-life care. We're not, as humans, used to, and, we, and certainly as Americans, we don't have a lot of instances where we are given a chance to practice with the realities of life. And the pandemic and infections ha- has really highlighted that, you know, because it, it pushed all of us constantly into that position. You know, my family has a birthday party and there's a risk of COVID spread because there's a current wave that's happening. You know, I'm just supposing as a, for instance, there's a current wave that's happening right now. Uh, Do I not go because I don't want to get infected or do I take the risk because I haven't seen my family and I need to see them? I need to be in, you know, just as a side note, uh, my family recently had a joint birthday party recently and it was a really wonderful time. And I had, a. it was very meaningful to me. I really bonded with um, my nephew who was starting to get into Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and so uh, we, uh, all he wanted to do was read the monster manual. And I, I didn't know he was into that sort of thing. And uh, he just kept going, you know, monster manual, let's read it. And, and, uh, and it, yeah, it was fun for me too. So that was really meaningful to me. I don't know if I'll ever forget that moment. And, and, I'm glad I took the risk, right? No one got COVID from the party, but as far as I know. Now, I will say that some people couldn't attend because they were sick, whereas in the past, they would have just come and, and we would have risked it. But so, you know, we've made adjustments, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult place to be. And I wonder where we will be in five, 10 years with this question. If as Americans, as as humans, we will have a more wise approach to these kinds of questions. All right, this next email is from Patreon Levante on Patreon. He said, my name is Levante. I am an African-American man born and raised in Compton, California. I was raised by religious grandparents who didn't see eye to eye with me due to a generational gap and lack of understanding of the world today and solely relied on their faith. I was raised around gang culture, poverty, and drugs. Uh, When I was seven, I was given alcohol by my father, and at 11, both parents abandoned me. Me not being close to my family resulted in me turning to gang culture at age 14 and losing my best friend to a bullet and dying in my arms. My last image of him is still stapled to my brain. I left the gang culture because of this, and I saw what it was doing to my community. At the age of 19, I was falsely accused of stealing because I quote-unquote fit the description, and it took two years to prove my innocence. Within those two years, I had to sit in jail where I experienced severe racism. It made me realize how much they hate us. And seeing the case of Tyree Nichols makes it even more depressing. Now, I know I'm just venting at this point, but I don't even know if I have a question. I know that you are a white man, and I understand that you can't give me much in terms of advice, but I do love your podcast. Okay, just chiming in here. I'm not technically white, white. I'm half white. I'm half Asian. But um, anyway, going on here. My question is, how can an African-American feel like their life has purpose when their own people and the opposite race continue to kill us in our own communities? Sorry, I read that kind of funny. My question is, how can an African-American feel like their life has purpose, even though their own people and the opposite race, meaning white people, continue, continue to kill us in our own communities? How do I continue to want to go on with life when you see this system firsthand and know it is not made for you to have a position of power to make change? How do you have a child in today's world knowing you have to educate them on racism and how not to get killed? I am 29 years old and don't have the motivation to go on. I just feel like we are living just to be here. In the U.S., there will always be tiers and minorities will always be at the bottom of that tier. Thank you for reading. End of email. Yeah. So, Levante, I obviously don't know the answer to that question. I ask that question myself a lot of the time. But the way that I answer it for myself is, so I have a lot of Asian ancestors, my dad, one, but also my great, my grandparents and my great grandparents. And I wonder, or I imagine, and sometimes I know because I had conversations with them about what they would tell me to do. What would they want me to do? What, what would my ancestors want me to do? What, what do my people want me to do? And the answer to that is to keep on keeping on is to keep going is to have the emotion to get the support to vent, to get angry, but to persevere. Now, it's easy for me to say, but that's how that's one way we can explore that. 
The other is that it's okay to feel despair. It's okay to feel hopeless. It's normal. It's rational to feel hopeless. It's rational to feel tremendous despair. It's rational to ask yourself, what's the point of life? Why even have kids? Why are we even doing this? We just keep getting pushed down and killed and denied and ignored and pathologized. And it gets under our skin such that even our own people start to kill our people, right? So it's, it, it is demoralizing. It, if, if you aren't demoralized, then you aren't paying attention. If you're not angry, if you're not hopeless, you're not paying attention in my book. Does it end there? You know, that's up to you. Uh, for me, it doesn't end there. For me, I say, well, you know, countless other people before me and after me, ha- they persevere. They just keep, they, they get up and they keep at it. They get up and they march. They get up and they vote. They get up and they speak out. They get up and they go on with their day and they create goodness and beauty in the world. And they lead by example and they try to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. But that's a personal choice. And I, I, don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do, Levante, but I hear you. I do. All right, let's take a break. We'll get back some more emails. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often, those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems. But there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well. And by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. So, celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Back from the break. Annual patron Natasha from California. By the way, trigger warning. This is going to involve a brief mention of cutting self-harm. So skip forward 10 minutes if you're triggered by that. In a 2019 episode, you talked about a novice therapist reacting poorly to a client disclosing about self-harm, and I'm wondering how you remain in a space of being helpful and attentive if a client is telling you something that freaks you out. I'd like to eventually be a therapist, but blood and the idea of cutting really give me all the visceral reactions. And I imagine it could be very harmful for a client to see their therapist make a face when talking about that. How do you handle that situation for yourself? End of email. Yeah. So it's good, Natasha, that you know that about yourself. We all have our sensitivities as human beings, and it is important that through graduate school and supervision, we list those sensitivities, those issues that when brought up by clients are going to trigger us, are going to cause us to lose our ability to be the best therapist that we can. Now, what do we do with that once we've identified those things? It you know, depends case by case. Uh, one thing, Natasha, that so if you were coming to me, Natasha, and, I, and I, I'll field questions like this from prospective students, they'll be like, you know, I really want to be a, a therapist. I really want to enter your program, but I have this issue. What do I do? And I would say, well, uh, one, there's a lot of things you can do. One is if it's totally intolerable, you could screen clients out who have this issue or work with particular clients who are not likely to have this issue, okay? Because this isn't something that comes up a lot in therapy, especially graphic descriptions of self-harm or cutting. I mean, usually you'd have to 
pry that out of someone to begin with. I mean, just the idea of self-harm, non-suicidal self-injury, usually people don't talk about it at all. And if they do, they'll talk about it in very general ways. Sometimes it's important to get into the specifics if you're really trying to treat people and really trying to problem solve uh, or trying to get at the experience for the individual. But it's not usually critical. Like of all the people, you know, the dozens of people I've treated in depth on cutting and non-suicidal self-injury. I could probably think of just a handful of times where we had to talk or even just naturally came up about the specific nature of the cutting. You know, usually we're talking about emotional regulation and trauma recovery and support and potentially kind of an addiction model because sometimes it can be like an addiction and you need other things to distract you. You know, there, there's a lot of talk around a non-suicidal self-injury and what causes it and um, how to mitigate it, how to mitigate the factors that lead to non-suicidal self-injury. Uh, but talking specifically about the cutting and the blood is, you know, it's, it's not a common. So you could just not get into that material. The other thing is that if a client were to bring that up and you were to have a face, for example, like a, a visceral reaction to it, you can just say, oh, by the way, sorry, I just made a face a couple, a couple of minutes ago or two seconds ago, because I actually have a little bit of trauma around this. <laughs> and so, um, but I don't, it's not your responsibility, but I just want you to know that that face was not a face of rejection against you or some kind of judgment. It, it's just my own sensitivity. That's all. And that that's not your fault. You, you know, you could say that it, it, you can be a human being as a therapist, you know, it's okay. And then of course the long-term solution is to heal from whatever you need to heal from so that you don't have that visceral reaction and you have a more soothing, calm reaction at the very least on the outside, you know, there are different levels to it, right? There's the reaction where you have an involuntary a negative facial bodily reaction. Then there's a step down from there where you feel a feeling uh, that's intense in reaction to what a client is saying, but you have control enough to not exhibit it on the outside. And then uh, a step down from there is you kind of have a reaction to it, but not really. And then a step down from there is you just, you don't have any kind of personal counter-transferential reaction to the client's material. And the more you heal, the more support and the more repetitions you have. Because Natasha, I'm guessing that even given your current visceral reactivity to it, if you, for example, talked even to just, you know, half a dozen clients with this issue, at the end of that, you know, I don't know, maybe a month, let's say, you probably wouldn't have a reaction anymore because you'd be habituated to hearing about that content, right? Often the first time or even the anticipation of hearing it the first time is the worst, but I don't know. This would be something you'd have to talk with, with your supervisor about. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Balas. He says, well, he actually had a long email describing how one of his family members is abusive and makes a lot of people suffer in extreme ways, very severe ways a lot of fear, a lot of violence, a lot of trauma. This family member traumatizes a lot of people. And then he asks at the end, how is it fair that the ones who don't deserve it should suffer so much and the ones that do, they walk away without any suffering? End of email. Yeah, so basically what Balas is saying is, look, this family member causes everyone else to suffer, even though it's their fault. You know, my, my family member creates all these problems and everyone else suffers around this family member, but this abusive family member seems to not suffer at all. How, how is that, you know, why does it happen that way? And, you know, I, I don't know the answer particularly to your situation, Ballas, but what I, what I hear in this email is you asking a question, why am I suffering so much? Because that is a very important question to answer. I don't know, but a lot of people in your position, given the, des the description that you gave me in the longer email, the reason why a lot of family members will stay close or close enough to abusive members in one's family is because often the abused victims believe that if they just work it right, the abusive person will stop being abusive, right? Or it's their du duty to stay close to that person because you're not supposed to abandon family. Or sometimes you just get sort of brainwashed or gaslit into feeling like it's just normal to live a life with an abusive family member. And there's really no other option when 
there often is another option, which is to cut yourself off from these people. And I'm not saying that's what you're supposed to do, boss, but what I hear in your questions is, wait, why am I doing this? Is there a way out of this? This doesn't seem fair that I and others are So that's another thing that will keep people in it is, well, I can't leave because I can't abandon my sister or my sibling or whoever, because they're also a victim. And you know, case by case, but everyone just has to make their own choice. And sometimes when you move away, then other people, I, I've been in that position before where me and uh, a friend were being abused by another friend. And because I was raised well enough to recognize abuse when it happens, I pretty quickly decided that I, I so <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the kind of full general story because I don't, I don't want to name names, but the abusive person was abusing my other friend. And I, but the, so the abusive person wasn't abusing me yet. They were abusing my other friend. And I was wondering, I'm like, is this a, because my other friend who was a victim was not pushing back. He was just taking it. It was, so I, I, I didn't know if it was actually abusive to my other friend because they didn't seem to be reacting against it. But I was like, if, if, if that abusive person were to do that to me, I'd be done. I'd be like, no, no, we're, we're done. What you just did completely ruined everything. I never want to talk to you again. And so the litmus test or the threshold I had in my mind was if he does that to me, then we're, cause he hasn't done it to me yet. He's only been doing, and then I thought, well, maybe it's just their weird relationship that they have. So, you know, what do I know? But I said, if he, if that if that abusive person if he turns on me in even 10% the version of what he's doing to my other friend I'm fucking done because it's hard for me to watch him abuse someone else but I'll be damned if I'm going to take it myself and it did it happened almost immediately as soon as I cuz I as I started to see more of the abuse happening I was just like whoa and then it, and then it happened to me it was a small version but it happened to me and then I just said I'm done I just turned to the to the two of them basically and said, I'm, I'm no longer going to be friends with the two of you. And uh, I didn't really get into it. I, I just sort of drifted away. I can't, I can't, it was many, many years ago. I can't remember exactly what I said, but um, then the other victim came to me and said, um, well, so you're leaving, you know, that you're, you're not going to hang out with us anymore. And I was like, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I don't, you know, I didn't want to get into it, but I'm, I'm just going to, I'm, you know, I'm piecing out. And the, the other victim was like, well, but why, why are you, why are you doing this? And I said, well, because, you know, the third guy is abusive and I, I was watching him abuse you all this time and I didn't know what was going on there and it was making me uncomfortable and I made a vow that if he turned on me, I'd be done. And so this other victim friend was like, oh, yeah, interesting. Okay. And then a week later, the other victim friend called me up and said, well, I want out too. I don't want to be abused anymore. So I said, long story short, I gave the main victim permission to leave the victimizer, the abusive person, because I modeled that I valued myself and it was okay to leave a victimizing situation. And so the main victim actually uh, followed me <laughs> and said, well, what we can be friends, right? And uh, and that would be more logical because then neither one of us will be with the abusive person. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, that's up to you. I'm certainly not going to force you to do that. I'd be, I'd, I'd welcome you because you're not an abusive person. But you know, it's a choice that you just have to make on your own. And so, you know, I, that's what I hear, Balas, is why am I and others. Why is this happening? It's a great question. It's a great beginning to an exploration of self-awareness and justice for you. All right. Anonymous upper tier patron wrote in, and basically I'll just summarize her email. She was wondering about if, you know, because I talk about having breakout sessions with couple and family therapy, meaning that I will meet with different sex segments of the family, different um, groups within the family. Like maybe I'll meet with just the kids or just the parents or just uh, each spouse alone. And then we'll meet together as a couple again. And what this anonymous up here patron was wondering is like, well, how do you reassure people? Because uh, it might cause a lot of anxiety that maybe you're going to talk badly about them behind their back, right? That the clients might worry about them. 
Like for example, if me and my wife, me, me, Kirk and Stacy were to go to therapy it and the therapist suggested meeting individually with each of us, I, me, Kirk would have some anxiety of like, oh God, what is Stacy going to tell the therapist? Is it, is it going to be all negative? How will the therapist react to that? Will the therapist influence my wife against me? You know, these are normal thoughts. It's not paranoid. It's completely normal to have, there's a lot at stake. So what do I do as a therapist? Well, you know, we talk about it and I reassure people. But the main thing is, is that over time, I prove to everyone that I am on everyone's side and that I am interested in the compassionate point of view and I'm trying to help them understand each other. I'm not there to draw a wedge between anybody. So the proof's in the pudding, right? And over time, I think I established that with people because uh, it's pretty common for me to have, uh, you know, breakout sessions, even with couples. And I, you know, just really set out purposely, consciously to prove to everyone that even when you are not here, you know, if I'm just going to talk with your spouse alone, you can trust me that I'm not going to blast you behind your back. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to be even pushing back on your spouse. You know, like one of the things that they'll probably learn over time is say, for example, I have a heterosexual couple and I'm talking to the husband and the husband is complaining about his wife. And over time, not always, but in general, I'm going to push back a little bit on the husband in that moment. I'm going to stand up for the wife a little bit and not in an argumentative way, but to say like, well, you seem to be looking at her behavior as pretty as a pretty negative thing. But, you know, might there be another explanation for that? And the husband, when I do that to him, will probably know that in my session with the wife, I'm also doing that to her. I'm defending him when she is looking negatively at him. And over time, you know, they just learn to trust that. Now, having said all that, this is a, you know, just a generalization of therapy, but there's a lot of nuance therapy, a lot of variance of therapy. Am, am I always pushing back on people's perspectives? No, <laughs> yeah, that's not. But what I am doing is I'm looking at everyone through a compassionate lens. And I think that that proves that I can be trusted when they aren't in therapy. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. I'm looking forward to answering all the other emails that I can get to in this season of winter cleaning, spring cleaning of emails. And everyone, please, 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 please take care of yourself, really. And take care of others because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 